This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today, fascinating consumer research which tells you why the major parties are saying what they are about health. Should health star ratings be compulsory on the processed foods on your supermarket shelves? There's a growing push for this. And those powders, balls and bars. No, I'm not talking about floor exercises. You can't have missed the boom in the protein supplement industry. The shelves in the supermarkets filled with tubs of powder and protein bars. Even your local coffee shop has jars of protein balls. Some of it has to do with the popularity of the ketogenic diet, but a lot of it is aimed at gym junkies who want to build muscle bulk after a weightlifting session. Protein supplements containing so-called branched chain amino acids are marketed for just that purpose and are claimed to reduce delayed muscle soreness and fatigue, as well as build muscle. Research published last week by a group at the University of Sydney sounds a note of warning, albeit from animal studies. The lead author is Samantha Solon Beat, the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. Welcome back to the Health Report, Sam. Hi, Norman. Thanks for having me. So you better go back to basics. What are amino acids? So amino acids are essentially the building blocks of proteins. There are 20 of them and there are essential amino acids, those that we must get from our food and there are those that we can synthesize ourselves. So the branching amino acids are three essential amino acids. Now, which are the th- those three? Yeah, those I mean, because you know, I, I think, as I said earlier on today in on radio, you couldn't have actually said this on radio before because people wouldn't have a clue, but now it's almost like common parlance. So what are these three amino acids in the branched chain? That's right. That's isoleucine, leucine, and valine. And those three make up most of the supplements um, that you'll see for exercise, as you mentioned earlier. And why are they called branched chain? Uh, they're, they cha- they're different in their configuration. Actually. So it's just the chemical structure. Exactly. And th- so they've been pushed for, the, you know, take them and they're going to bulk up your muscle and they all say it's proven and delay muscle soreness. Before we get on to your, um, your research in particular, is there any evidence that they do any more than any other amino acid build protein, build muscle? Yeah, the branched chain amino acids, particularly leucine, one of them, um, which make up most of the supplements, are actually well known to activate this pro-growth, pro-aging pathway called mTOR. And that usually is associated with muscle growth as well as protein synthesis and overall growth. So in terms of exercise, there's a lot of evidence looking at how branched-chain amino acid supplementation is good for lean muscle mass and anabolic growth. Right, because uh, you know, unusually for the health report, I actually did some research into this today, and I, um, I, I found one paper that suggested it actually increased muscle breakdown. Oh, there is conflicting evidence out there. I mean, it makes you live longer, it makes you live shorter. Uh, yeah, there's... Okay, so that's the, that's the marketing promise. Tell us about your study, because this is not into gym junkies, this is into mice junkies. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of years ago, we published a study looking at how uh, the balance of protein, carbs and fats affects late life health and longevity. Which was the last time you were on the health report. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you, in fact, found that low protein and high carbohydrate, a bit like the Mediterranean diet, was the best diet for the mice in terms of... Metabolic health and lifespan. That's right. And that's because it suppressed the pro-growth, pro-aging pathway, mTOR. Whereas high-protein, low-carb diets increase growth, but actually reduce lifespan in our mice. So they make you age faster. Yes, exactly. So what we found is that 
these mice that were short-lived. So you better tell. You better. T- so is this you're still talking about the, the previous study? Yeah, I'm. I'm going to go into the new study okay. now. Um, that well, these yeah, mice. I'll, had, I'll relax and just <laughs> let you talk. These mice had really high levels of BCAAs in their blood, also high mTOR activation. So in this current study, what we want to look at is how long-term BCAA supplementation influences health and aging. And what we found is that, in fact, in these mice, having a high BCAA diet uh, combined with high carbs actually did reduce their lifespan. And um, this was via increased obesity and um, food intake. So their appetite went up. Absolutely. So the mechanism behind this is... uh, what we think is going on. So just before you go on, so it's high carbs. Now, most of the people who are taking this stuff would be on a low-carb diet. In fact, carbs would be considered poison yep. for them. Did you try low-carbs in the so mice? In the pre- no, we didn't try low-carbs. And we think actually it's a double-burden kind of thing. If you have high BCAAs with low-carbs, you activate mTOR and accelerate aging. If you have high BCAAs with high-carbs and limiting tryptophan, then you start... Getting into, the, uh, getting into appetite signaling and disrupting that. So it could be a double burden, if you like. Okay, so you can't win. And what, so what do you think is going on? So what we found is that the BCAAs are actually competing for uptake into the brain, uh, competing with tryptophan. Tryptophan is another amino acid. It is. It's another amino acid. And it's particularly important in this case because it's the only precursor for the hormone serotonin. Which we've heard about. Exactly. So it's the happiness chemical. It controls mood and it also controls appetite. And we found that the mice on a high BCA diet had less serotonin in the blood and in the brain, which contributed to increased appetite. If we added back the tryptophan to the diet or increased serotonin reuptake by giving them a drug such as a SSRI or something like that. Exactly, an antidepressant. We also suppress food intake. Right. So... It wasn't the toxicity, it wasn't that these, the, the, beast, the branch chain amino acids were particularly toxic, it's what they did to the balance of amino acids in your body. Yes, that's what we found in this study. Now, these were not exercising mice. No, they were not. How general, so bottom line here is that in, in these mice, it wasn't a good idea to be taking a diet either high or low in carbohydrates and loading up on branch chain amino, amino acids. How generalizable is this beyond mice? Yeah, that's a good question. Of it's, course, it's, it's actually the only question, isn't it? You, you can't. It depends who you're talking to. Um, you can't. We can't generalize to human application, but we do know that the basic biology does remain the same. BCAAs and um, tryptophan compete for a transporter into the brain, and that's actually, I think, a really important uh, potential clinical kind of. Uh, implication that we could perhaps go into. So before you, you know this in humans, the prudent thing to do then if you are thinking about building muscle is actually to have a balanced protein intake rather than load up on the BCAAs. Exactly. I mean, getting your, your protein, your amino acids from various sources is the best way to have a balanced, um, balanced ratio of amino acids. We've got it, Sam. Thank you. Thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll just eat food from now on. Eat food. All right. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks. Dr. Samantha Solenbiet is an NHMRC fellow at the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney. This is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. <laughs> there are growing demands that the federal government make their health star rating on processed foods compulsory. This escalated last week after a report revealed that nearly half of all processed food on supermarket shelves is junk. 
The Health Stars, which aim to help consumers make smarter food choices, are currently voluntary on the part of the manufacturers and only appear on about a third of products, much of which are, by sheer coincidence, already healthy. Obesity experts say that without forcing food manufacturers to slap a rating on their products, the system isn't actually doing its job, including pushing the market to higher nutritional standards. Olivia Willis, the ABC Science Unit's health reporter, has been investigating. Welcome back to the health report, Liv. Hi, Norman. So this was a report from the George Institute. It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. What did did they do and find? So basically they analysed... 32,000 products um, on supermarket shelves so from all the kind of major food and beverage brands. And they were essentially looking at the overall nutritional value or quality of the product. So for, for products that had a health star rating, they used that. They also kind of looked at the level of processing, the nutrient composition, et cetera, and whether the food was considered a core food or discretionary. And they kind of compared this over the course of a year, so from 2017 to 2018. And they essentially found that there'd, there'd been really no improvement in the nutritional quality of processed foods in that time. Um, and more than that, they found that about 50% of products on supermarket shelves is what they call discretionary or junk. Right. Not a big surprise. Not a big surprise, no. And they weren't surprised, but there's a reason for that. So the, the government has kind of two key initiatives that they use to encourage manufacturers to reformulate processed foods and, as you say, kind of improve that nutritional standard across the supermarket. So that's doing things like cutting fat and sugar from the products. One is the Healthy Food Partnerships. So that's basically something that they use to encourage manufacturers um, to voluntarily reformulate their products. And the other is the Health Star Rating System, which you mentioned in the introduction. Um, and the hope there is that people would drift towards the health star rating mm-hmm. and manufacturers would then go to healthier products because the market's going that way. That's right. So it kind of gives them an incentive to improve the value, the, the nutritional value of their food because they'll get a better rating, essentially. Um, and so the kind of the problem is here is that they're, they're voluntary systems. But is there any evidence that the Health Star rating actually works when it's on the packet? Do people are able to use it? I mean, there are big loopholes mm. because... It might have a health star rating on it, but it's as you prepare it rather than the yes. food, which makes something like Milo quite healthy. That's true. So there's definitely milk in it. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely been some problems with the health star rating system in the past. The one that you point to is what is known as the as prepared rule. So that basically allows companies to rate products on based on the suggested recipe for preparation rather than the standalone nutritional value. That's why Milo used to clinch a kind of four and a half out of five stars, which is ludicrous um, and has since changed. But Experts still say that they think, by and large, this system is working well and certainly will work much better if it is mandated. And some manufacturers are quite happy for it to be mandated because it creates a level playing field. That's true. Yes, I think that is the case. Although I spoke to the Australian Food and Grocery Council and, and from a well, kind of hail, industry hail level, ratings, they? they're saying that they think the voluntary system is working well as is. Um, this is the same group that rejected the British traffic light system. I, obesity experts would say it's not working. So what, are either party commenting on this, given it's an election time? Yeah, so interestingly, this report came out last week, I think on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then on Thursday at the National Press Club, Catherine King and Greg Hunt went head-to-head with the national the health policy debate with election promises. And uh, Labor has kind of pledged to consider, well, broadly steps to improve Australian diet. So they've, they've announced a $150 million plan to address preventable illness. Part of that is $40 million for a national anti-obesity strategy. And that includes, Captain King said, they'll certainly consider mandating the Health Star rating system. But they're not saying they will. There's no absolute commitment. There's a consideration uh, and there's also a consideration of, of 
setting mandatory targets for reformulation. At the moment, those are also voluntary. And the key thing is there's there's not a lot of incentive. It's just keeping, not even keeping, you know, not just eating food, eating fresh food and unprocessed food keeps you safe. Well, I, it's interesting because obviously that there's, you know, we really need to be eating more fresh food, but processed food is a big part of where people get their energy from. So it's, it's key that we're improving the nutritional standards of packaged food. Liv, thank you. Olivia Willis is a health reporter with ABC Science Unit and you're listening to The Health Report. Well, it won't have escaped you that a week on Saturday there's a general election on and health has featured. Well, it featured quite strongly at the beginning of the election. It's kind of dribbled in and out since then with a lot of things of like cancer at the beginning, then dental and other things as well, including medical research. You can't not have a discussion about the election on the health report much as we'd like to avoid it. So to actually talk about the election, what's been happening, where health sits and are we actually getting the policies we need? In our Melbourne studio, we've got Professor Stephen Duckett, who is in charge of the health program at the Gretton Institute. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Norman. In our Sydney studio, we've got Dr. Rachel David. Rachel is currently CEO of Private Health Australia, which is the health insurance umbrella organisation. Prior to that, she's had work in the industry and also was an advisor to a former Minister of Health under John Howard Michael Woolridge. So welcome to you, Rachel. Hi, Norman. What do you both think of the election so far in terms of health, Rachel? A lot of the debate is really reflecting some of the problems that are coming up from consumers and in polling around cost of living. And healthcare can be a source of concern, particularly around the out-of-pocket costs that people face for things like visits to the doctor, visits to the dentist and medicines. And I think that so far in the election, we've seen a real focus on that. And it's certainly from our, we do an enormous amount of consumer research in our organisation. And we've seen particularly particularly for women aged between 45 and 64, that concern about the cost of healthcare to their families, it's almost something that they would change their vote if a party could make them a better offer. Is that only in the private sector or across the board? No, that's across the board. And it's an area of increasing concern that we're seeing in the community. So it's of no surprise to me that those out-of-pocket costs have been a real focus of the election campaign and the debate so far. Stephen? I'd agree with Rachel there. I think what we're seeing in the health debate mirrors the wider memes or the wider strategies of the two parties. So certainly Labor across the board, not only in health, has been focusing on cost of living pressures. We've seen that in childcare. We've seen it in health. Why women, Um, Rachel? Look, women at that age, not only are they beginning to experience some health problems themselves, particularly the sequelae of chronic illness like arthritis and diabetes, but they're also responsible for families and they're usually the main decision maker when it comes to how their family's budget is allocated to things like health or health-related areas like food. So that's why you'll see that they're particularly concerned. Stephen, were you surprised when Labor came up with the cancer policy? So just to remind listeners... The cancer policy was about out-of-pocket. It, it offered an enhanced bulk billing fee, which in fact is similar to what private health insurance offers to surgeons. If they agree on a fixed fee for surgery, they get a better rebate from the private health insurance. And so this is going to be Medicare will give you an enhanced bulk billing fee if you're a consultant oncologist and plus some stuff on imaging and free imaging. And were you surprised when they came up with this? 
These issues have apparently been coming up spontaneously in Bill Shorten's town hall meetings that he's been having over the last couple of years, that, that he's been wandering around the country, not getting much publicity about it, but he's been able to listen to what people are saying out of the blue without any pressure. And so we knew that cancer out of pockets was an important one. The issue was how were they going to address it and what mix of policies they were going to have to address that issue. And obviously, there's lots of components to that cancer policy, including expanding public hospital services, expanding outpatient services. So the actual mix was the surprise, not that they decided to do something about it. But Rachel, it's not the only source of out of pocket. You can be out of pocket for orthopaedic surgery. If you've got diabetes and you go and see an endocrinologist in the community, he or she's going to charge you a gap. It's 500 bucks to see an allergist out there in the community. So people are out of pocket right, left and centre. Why should it be just oncologists, cancer specialists who get the chance to get a higher bulk billing fee? Well, look, to start with, the health funds, you know, have genuinely welcomed this announcement because for many of our patients, we can't cover the gap for out-of-hospital care, only for in-hospital care. That's the law. And many of our members with cancer have faced accumulating out-of-pockets from repeated specialist visits in private. So it's actually solved a problem for them, but it has, to an extent, opened a Pandora's box because, of course, specialists... It's only one part of the system. It's only one part of the system. And there'll be a number... We've seen in the media already a number of specialists from other areas that want to access the high rebate. And I think that should Labor be elected on May the 18th, that will be an issue that will need to be addressed because immediately this has opened up an avenue for lobbying from those other groups. Do you agree, Stephen? Yes. I mean, I think with many of these, so with the dental announcement, Labor said we're going to go with policy for pensioners and seniors, healthcare cardholders, people over 65, but we eventually want to get to a universality. And I think the same is going to be true with this bulk billing fee. Obviously, out-of-pocket costs for specialists can be quite high, as, as Rachel said, but it is anomalous to have it just for cancer. And the other point I'd make is... Very rarely do people just have one thing wrong with them. So you're going to have a person with cancer and also with diabetes, for example. There is going to be some implementation challenges with this. Well, also it could be inflationary, couldn't it? It will need to be carefully negotiated because the Commonwealth actually has few legal mechanisms to be able to force a doctor to bulk bill under any circumstances, even when a high rebate or a bulk billing incentive is offered. We have seen a small number, but a significant number of doctors are able to game the health fund gap cover system that operates in a similar way, even by just charging patients separately. And so it will require some compliance and some strong negotiation to make sure that if doctors are saying they're bulk billing and offering a lower cost service that they actually are and that we're not chasing increasing medical fees. Do you agree, Stephen? Yes, I think one of the issues that Rachel is referring to is that doctors are starting to charge these things called booking fees or management fees, which are not covered by Medicare and not disclosed to Medicare. So Medicare can't monitor what is happening in these out-of-pocket environment, out-of-hospital. And I think, again, this is an issue that is going to be pretty tricky. That is, the fee is only if the doctor bulk bills, but what happens if the doctor sends a bill the next day, which is a separate fee for parking or something, goodness knows what, which is in reality getting around the bulk billing limitation. 
Let's move on now to dental. I mean, they've obviously used the Grattan Institute playbook, Labour. Um, it sounds like the interview that you and I did a few weeks ago. Stephen, you must be gratified by that. Oh, it was very pleasing to see. They didn't precisely adopt everything that we recommended. In fact, Silly people. <laughs> That's exactly right. They, but for but about a thousand bucks every two years isn't going to buy you much. Well, it's, it's what we recommended and it's what's in the Commonwealth Child Dental Benefit Schedule at the moment. And as far as we're concerned, they've adopted the infrastructure. They've said, this is the group we're going to start with. We're going to try to get to universality. And a thousand bucks every second year, $500 a year, you can accumulate it over two, is a very, very good start that I think people will welcome. Rachel? Look, I think we are going to have some challenges here. And one of the real challenges that the Australian governments have had with the dental market is there is no fee benchmark or standard fees for procedures. And there's huge variation in fees for the same procedure. The average price of a crown, for example, can vary between $1,000 and $4,000, depending on where you are and where you go. There's not a lot that the Commonwealth, again, can do about that legally. Dentists have the same constitutional protection as doctors in that the Commonwealth can't force them to charge a particular fee. They have to enrol in some kind of program where, you know, they would guarantee that. And dentists yeah. aren't used to, as a group, culturally being part of the Medicare system? No, it's a, it's a cottage industry, about 15%, just to give some background, about 15... Pretty well-paid yeah. cottage industry. Well, about 15% of the dental market is in some kind of corporate structure where there are economies of scale and they can drive down the cost of consumables, for example, and possibly give a better deal to the consumer. But the rest of it are really small practices. They often have no market power over the cost of consumables and pass on quite high cost to the consumer. So I think the... $1,000 in itself probably will cover people for the preventive side. But when it comes to interventions, I think the Commonwealth might need to look at something a little bit more sophisticated here, including subcontracting this program to an organisation which has some infrastructure to be able to So you to might get preferred deliver. providers. Was that part Correct. of your plan, Stephen? Yeah. So what we said was there should be what we call participating providers, that is participating practices that you don't expect every dentist to be signing up to the scheme. What we said in our report was this $500, $1,000 cap might be only a few years as you get the scheme established because over time what the health insurance funds have done is that they have service-related caps. So you, know, you can only have so many visits over a two-year period or over a one-year period. And that is a better way of doing it in our view, but we, we don't have the mechanism, we don't have the ability to cost that at this stage. So we just ported across the caps and arrangements from the Commonwealth, the existing child dental benefit scheme. Rachel, you are here. I mean, I was getting you in more as somebody who represented the private health industry, but Bill Shorten has said there's going to be a 2% cap on private health insurance premiums to try and re re limit the cost rises year by year. And there's going to be a Royal Commission or Royal Commission and Investigation. Productivity Commission review into the private health sector. So will there be a two? Have they moved back from that and said that they'll wait for the Productivity Commission reports? No, what? no. Currently, ALP policy is that they'll do the 2% premium increase cap for two years and the Productivity Commission review will operate in tandem to that. So, we'll have so obviously you representing the industry don't like that, but there could be some good things that come out of that, such as consolidation. A lot of the small, less efficient private health insurers could disappear. Well, look, I think that from a consumer perspective, it does address the very real concerns that people have about rising premiums. What the funds would like to see is more of 
a focus on some of the costs that are pushing premiums up that might not be necessary. There's some costs that we can't control, and that is just simply the cost of covering the baby boom population as they get older and require more health care. And that's a problem for the whole health system. It's not just exclusive to the private side. And that's a, a really big challenge for all global economies, actually. But there are some costs where outdated regulation has locked health funds into paying for certain things, like very high prices for some commonly used medical implants, for example, based on historical arrangements. Because the paradox here is that you pay more than the public sector does because they're they're freer to operate in the free market. Correct. So there are some things that we've asked governments to look at. We need, I mean, there's some things the funds can do on their own, but there are some things we need the regulators help to be able to achieve in terms of putting downward pressure on premiums. What's your position on this, Stephen? Well, I agree with Rachel. The, the regulation... It's very disappointing. It, <laughs> well, I'll try and work out something to disagree, but the, the regulatory environment for the private health insurance funds is just antediluvian. It, it really hasn't been updated for 20, 30 years in, in any real sensible way. Just to give you one example, the health insurance funds are required to pay for every arthroscopy of the knee that is done, whether there's any evidence that arthroscopy of the knee for osteoarthritis works. So they have no ability to address questionable care of over-servicing and so on. And it seems to me that we've got to be able to say, if we're going to be tightening up on the health insurance funds in terms of their cost structures and all that sort of stuff, we've got to say to them, well, you're going to have to stand a bit more on your own two feet. And so in order for you to be able to do that, you've got to have less regulation, more ability to negotiate with public and private hospitals and prosthesis manufacturers and so on. And so be much more agile and much more up to date in what we're expecting of how we're going to control you. And I'll give you another example of something that's actually really quite difficult. And that is that if anyone was to open up a little day surgery on a street corner that does very low value work, that is completely above and beyond what the community needs, we are forced to pay for any and every admission to that facility, whether or not it's necessary. The health fund dollar, which is the member's dollar, is spread very thinly across high quality, larger hospital and well-run hospital groups to, you know, basically I could decide to open a rehab facility in my backyard and if it got accreditation, we would be forced to pay for that regardless of the quality of the treatment. Now, we could talk for an hour on this, but we've only got a few more minutes. Prevention. I don't hear much from either party on prevention. Nobody's made a bid for a sugar tax. Does that surprise you, <laughs> Stephen? Yes, well, it, it doesn't surprise me. Obviously, there are electorates at play in Queensland where the sugar is important. But I think what we're beginning to see, I think last at the press club speeches, Labor announced its prevention policy of 115 million, I think it was, of prevention initiatives. And Liberals have also done something on obesity recently as well. So we're more or less coming to the end of the campaign. I mean, I don't know what proportion of people have already voted. I've, I've voted already. So I think we're just now seeing those prevention initiatives coming onto the agenda. And Rachel, finally... General practice, it's in a mess. Most general practitioners are pretty unhappy about their lot. We're overproducing doctors. We've got maldistribution. Again, we don't hear much from either side of a coherent primary care strategy that's critical to you in the private sector as it is in the public sector as well. 
Well, look, I think this is a bit of a sleeper issue, actually, that could creep up on the community and turn into something quite significant. We're now training more medical specialists coming out of our medical schools than we are GPs, and we're training record numbers of doctors overall. If we want the GP to really have an ongoing relationship with people and their families and understand their needs and help them in their journey through the health system and be the gatekeeper and do all of those other things, then I think some of the relativities around how they're remunerated relative to medical specialists do need to be addressed. But we are locked in to a system that was developed in the 1970s when, you know, the diseases that we had were different. Stephen, have you got any insight into how the Reform Commission proposed by Labour is going to work? Catherine King, the Shadow Minister, said at the press club that the first thing the Reform Commission was going to do is try and address this issue of primary care reform. One of the things that I think is really disappointing is that the MBS review, the Medicare Benefit Schedule Review Task Force on General Practice, which released its report just before Christmas, didn't actually go into detail, didn't actually present an agenda which either party could have picked up. It was all general directions. The general directions were very good, but there wasn't enough detail to say where we ought to go. So I think that's what the Reform Commission will have to do is just work with the industry to say what are the steps, work with consumer groups, what do we need to do to address this critical issue. Look, thank you very much to you both. We'll find out what happens uh, over the next few months, whoever gets into power, to Rachel David, who is CEO of Private Healthcare Australia, and Stephen Duckett, who is head of the health program at the Grattan Institute. Thanks very much to you both. Thanks, Norman. Thanks, Norman. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.